So the first reading is from Matthew chapter 13. We're beginning at verse 53, and we'll read through to chapter 14, verse 12. Uh, That can be found on page um, 1023 in the Bibles from the foyer. When Jesus had finished these parables, he moved on from there. Coming to his hometown, he began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offence at him. But Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown and in his own house is a prophet without honour. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus and said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John. But he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away, so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, 
and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak. And all who touched him were healed. Well, keep your uh, Bible open there to Matthew chapter 13 and 14. Uh, we'll be looking at that. Uh, and uh, there's also an outline uh, that you might like to use or which we've got on the way in uh, for where we're headed tonight as well. Why don't I lead us in prayer as we look at this part of the Bible. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God, uh, a God who speaks to us, a God who makes yourself known. Uh, please help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, and minds and hearts to understand and love you as we hear your word tonight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, over the past few weeks, as we've seen, we've come back into the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, in, this is one of the four narrative accounts of Jesus' life that we have preserved for us in the Bible. Now, if you were able to join us, uh, you would have seen that in this section from chapters 13 through 17, uh, Jesus is doing things in a bit of an unexpected way. Uh, you see, he's bringing God's kingdom, which in one sense the people were expecting, um, but he's doing it in an unexpected way. He's the unexpected king, if you like, because he's different to their expectations. You see, he hasn't come like the kings of the earth with great kind of pomp and ceremony, a grand entrance with all spotlights on him. Look at me. I'm going to get the full news cycle. He's come in a way that looks small, small and sort of unimpressive, like a mustard seed that we saw last week. But that starts small and grows into a tree that is greater than all of the other vegetable, all of the other garden plants. Or like yeast that we saw working through, you can't see it, but it works through the whole of a batch of dough. So Jesus' kingdom starts small, looking pretty insignificant, but will have a big effect. And ultimately nothing, in fact, no one who stands outside his kingdom will stand in the end, will they? Where you stand with Jesus really does matter. But we also saw in the parables uh, throughout the earlier parts of chapter 13 that uh, in particular in the parable of the sower, that the people will respond to Jesus in a range of ways. And so the disciples, knowing this, knowing that, that Jesus is a king who uh, 
despite being from God, is going to have a, rain, a bit of a mixed reception. Um, that's what they're expecting. Sorry, there's the tree. I missed that one. There we go. Uh, a bit of a, a mixed reception. Um, what different responses have you heard about Jesus? In a sense, there's still a mixed reception around that Jesus gets, isn't there? And some people might say he was just a nice guy or a good teacher. Uh, some people these days might say, oh, you know, he's a bit outdated, really. Um, or he can't help me. Or maybe, you know, some people might need him, you know, like a, like a crutch, but, but I don't need him. And, well, was Jesus even real anyway? Well, he sure was real. And in fact, this account that we're reading is a historical narrative account of Jesus' life. And so today we're going to see even some of those mixed responses in the passage. Jesus has finished explaining a number of parables, uh, 13, 53, chapter 13, verse 53, and now we head back into the action. We've had that kind of slice, if you like, of speech, of, of, of talking, and now we've got a big slice of action uh, from here through to chapter 16, I think. Let's uh, flip over. So chapter chapter 13, verse 54. Jesus starts coming to his hometown. Now, although Jesus grew up in Nazareth, kind of, I've got my little, here we go, red thing. Nazareth's over here. It's where he grew up. Of course, he wasn't born there. We all know that he was born in Bethlehem. Um, But he started his ministry over here in Capernaum, okay, when he was about 30 years old. Uh, he was there teaching people about the kingdom of God and healing people. But now he comes back to that place where he grew up and begins teaching in the synagogue, uh, the place where the Jews gathered on the Sabbath to hear uh, from the Old Testament, hear from the law. And initially the people are amazed, aren't they? But as they think it over, uh, they become less and less impressed with Jesus. Let's have a look at that, verse 54. We'll have a look in your Bible as well. Uh, where did this man get these miraculous powers, they say? Interesting. And then they continue, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas? Aren't all his sisters here with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they take offence at him. Now, the New Testament uh, that we have here for us was originally written in, in ancient Greek, Koine Greek. Uh, and the word here is scandalizo, they took offence, they, they were scandalised by him, kind of, in a sense. They, they stumbled at him. They, in fact, led themselves into sin as they rejected him. They stumbled like stumbling over a stone. You see, when someone stumbles at Jesus, the, as Paul, one of the apostles, would later on go on to say, the exact visible image of the invisible God, well, they're rejecting the very one before whom they will stand in judgment. They're leading themselves away from the same one who could save them. They're stepping away from the only firm foundation. What is it that leads them this way as we look here? Well, interestingly, I think it's familiarity. Familiarity. Familiarity breeds contempt, they say. They saw his humble beginnings. We know this guy. He was, you know, the guy who grew up down the road in that house opposite the butcher. Uh, We know his family. How could he be genuinely from God? 
And so they take what they think they know about him and assume that that's what he's really like and he's not the real deal. They stumble at him. You might have seen it in yourself or others around you, how familiarity with the gospel, how familiarity with with Jesus and all of that has led to apathy about it. Consider someone that I know. Um, I'll call them John. They they grew up uh, with Jesus around, uh, hearing about him, following, thinking about that, being familiar enough with him. Uh, But then now they kind of see, well, I can move on from him, kind of as questions arose and then they didn't sort of ask those questions and they assumed that Jesus didn't have the answers and moved on. And now it's hard for them to come back. It's hard for them to see the real Jesus because they assume they already know him. They assume that he doesn't have the answers. Someone who's had that kind of experience is often not interested to talk further. I don't need that. I know all that stuff already. And so verse 58, we see there Jesus doesn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. They don't want to draw near. And so Jesus doesn't show his power in miracles. He doesn't show much of the restoration and wholeness that he's bringing as the king of God's kingdom. Failing to to draw near means cutting yourself off from that firm foundation, the true rock. I think it's in one sense, an expression of those, ver- those words we heard Jesus say a little earlier, that to those who do not have, to those who do not have ears to hear, even what they have will be taken. Well, in the next scene, though, we see a bit of a different response. The backdrop kind of changes from the backwater of Nazareth up in the hills to the palace of Herod. Uh, look with me, chapter 14, oh, chapter 14, verse 1. Oh, no, I don't have that one. Oh, I forget that slide. Just look at it in the Bible. How about that? Chapter 14, verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard reports about Jesus and he said to his attendants, this is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead. That's why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, that seems to me like a bit of a bizarro kind of conclusion to come to. You know, this guy here doing miracles is... Is, is actually another guy over here who died and now is risen from the dead. And in fact, this other guy over here, John the Baptist, when he was alive, he didn't do any miracles at all. It's all a bit strange. Not quite your average you know, 21st century response to Jesus. But as the, the narrative continues, we see a little bit more about what's going on, don't we? You see, Herod's got a guilty conscience. He'd had John beheaded even though all the people saw John really was from God. He didn't like John, didn't like what he was saying, and so he he put him in prison, but he was afraid of the people, so he kept John alive, kept him safe in that kind of sense. But in the end, from this little episode, it seems actually that Herod was more afraid of appearing weak before his dinner guests and his celebratory feast for his birthday, takes a bit of a bloody turn, doesn't it? And just imagine sort of drops of blood marking the floor as this disembodied head is carried across the room on a platter. He was a spineless king in the end. 
because he wasn't bent on, on he, he didn't have other scruples that he was upholding, but it was all about keeping his own rule and living as he pleases. He simply uses others as a means to keep his hold on that. But that's quite a contrast, isn't it, to the king that he's responding to. Not a, a flashy king, not interested in, in the popularity contest, though he had crowds flocking to him. No need to try and guard his rule, ward off any of those who might possibly take it. But he has compassion on those who come to him. Verse 14, even when he's tired, even when he's trying to have a getaway. And that's where the next little episode takes us. You see, Jesus uh, withdrew by boat privately. Uh, he'd, he'd taken his disciples, gone away for some rest time and prayer, as we kind of see a little bit later on. Um, wouldn't that be nice, you know, getting away from it all, that peaceful location? Is that your idea of a kind of holiday? Get away from all the other kind of other people that there are around and just, you know, you and your family or friends. I'm sure Jesus' disciples were looking forward to that. But the crowds had other ideas. They'd seen him and so they, they thought, let's beat him to it. I was thinking it reminded me a little bit of uh, Australia Day, not this year, but last year. We thought, oh, yep, you know, new to the Hawkesbury, we'll, we'll scout out some quiet spot by the creek and we went to the Upper Colo River um, on Australia Day. We thought, yeah, this would be great. Uh, nice and quiet. And of course, everyone else who knew about that already was there well and truly ahead of us. Still, when Jesus arrives, he arrives at this place, this wilderness, desolate place. He's tired, he's weary. He doesn't tell the crowd to just clear off. He doesn't say, look, you know, I was on the other side of the river, you could see me there, I clocked off when I got in the boat, all right? See you later, we'll be back soon. No, he has compassion on them, doesn't he? Verse 14, he heals their sick, he speaks to them. It reminds me of an earlier moment in Matthew's Gospel. Come back just three or four pages with me um, in your paper Bibles. I'd like to hear those pages rustling. Um, Back to the end of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 35 and 6. You see, there we've got this little bit of a summary statement in 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness. And then we come to this verse, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. He saw, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, sheep without a shepherd, they're not going to last long, are they? Um, Jesus sees that the people are lost. That the, the, the ruling, uh, you know, Herod, he's, he's fickle, you know, swings this way or that, depending on whatever he wants to do. The Pharisees, they're already plotting to stop Jesus undermining their influence among the people. You know, he's exposing their hypocrisy and they don't like that. The the leaders aren't leading them and caring for them and Jesus is there. They come to him and he has compassion on them. He doesn't use the crowd for his own benefit, but he serves them and he cares for them. No wonder they're drawn to him. Well, the crowd stick around for a while and now it's getting late, isn't it? The disciples, 
You know, these guys like the, like to solve the logistical problems. Um, verse 15, send them away to get some food, they say. And Jesus comes back here with a strange answer, doesn't he? Back in chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 16. They don't need to go away, he says. You give them something to eat. You can imagine the look on the disciples' faces, jaws dropping. But all we've got is this, you know, five loaves and two fish. How could that possibly feed all these people? They can't. But Jesus can. They're kind of not quite on the right wavelength yet. Still thinking, well, still not quite getting who Jesus is and his power. It's a, it's a, a growing understanding for them. Some people, uh, sorry, come back. But Jesus can. Now Jesus here, he, he, in a way, may be reminiscent of a shepherd with his sheep. He gets them to, to sit down on the grass. And he doesn't do anything particularly special. What he does, you know, giving thanks to God and breaking the bread, that's just kind of what the, the leader of the Jewish household would do uh, at, a, at a feast or at an occasion. He gives thanks to God, breaks the bread, and he gives it to the disciples. And they give it to the crowd and it just it just keeps coming. It just keeps going out. Some people have tried to, to rationalise this episode. You know, remove the miraculous from it. Say, well, you know, actually it's not really anything amazing going on here. It's just a story where everyone kind of sees, they see one person kind of getting their, their lunch out and sharing it and so then they all kind of get their lunch out and share and everyone has enough to eat. Or, or maybe that, you know, some kind of thing where, well, there's... Still only a little bit, but then everyone's just really satisfied with one tiny little piece of bread or something. Simply not the case. This is a miracle of creation. The account clearly doesn't point to any of those other options. Did you notice the abundance of bread that is left over at the end? The Twelve basketfuls of broken pieces left over after the crowd of about 5,000 men, not, not including women and children, maybe fifteen or 20,000 people have eaten. And there's more food left over afterwards than before. This is a miracle of creation. There's a few things that kind of stand out from this episode. Whoops, sorry about that. Um, in contrast to Herod, who uses others for his own advantage, Jesus has compassion, as we saw on he has compassion and provides for those who come to him. But more than just kind of a, a miraculous, more than that, this miraculous feeding points to the fact that with Jesus we're dealing with someone who's more than just a prophet, more than, more than those who've come before. Sure, you know, in the Old Testament, Moses, he made you know, a drinking fountain out of a rock, you know, hitting it with the staff one time. But when it came to feeding the people, it was clearly God who was feeding the people with manna from heaven. You could look at Exodus chapter 16 if you want to check that out a little bit more. Something special, something more is going on here with Jesus. With all these little episodes, these little accounts that kind of fit together and are, and are strung together in quite a long uh, section for us tonight, Jesus is is trying to fill up the idea of who he is in the minds of the disciples as he goes along with new material, showing himself bit by bit. Sometimes it seems like 
you know, the penny drops for the disciples. It goes in and they get it. And then kind of other times, though, it feels like, you know, the coin kind of gets stuck in the slot, you know, like when that happens on vending machines and you just kind of want to shake it around or, or like, you know, on the money boxes when there's the plug at the bottom and it's not in and you put the coin in and it just falls straight out and you kind of think, guys, did you just hear what Jesus said? Like a little bit later on when they think that they've, you know, they're in trouble for forgetting to bring bread. And Jesus is like, don't you remember what happened with the 5,000? I'm not talking to you about not bringing bread. It's an ongoing, growing time of understanding for them. He's, Jesus is breaking new bounds here with what God is doing in the world. And although the apostles don't understand, they don't understand it all yet. They don't understand yet that Jesus really is Emmanuel, God with us. But there's kind of not really time to reflect at this point, is, is there? You know, verse 21, the number of those who ate is this many. And then verse 22, immediately, Jesus makes them get in the boat. Um, there's things, we, we see a bit of a response in a moment. Verse 22, immediately, Jesus sends the disciples off in the boat and to go on ahead of him while he dismisses the crowd. Our first thought that comes to my mind when Jesus is doing this is, well, Jesus, how are you going to get to wherever it is they're going? Uh, but remember, it is, it is a sea, uh, and, and often the places that they were going to were kind of around the edges, not, and so Jesus can walk around as well. But uh, there's something that, if you remember back at 13, look back at verse 13, what the plan was initially to get some time away and pray. Now, that might have got delayed by the crowd being there, but he says, now's the time. Let's make this happen. He sends them off. He dismisses the crowd, and off he goes onto a hill to pray. Now, you might think that a bit strange that Jesus prays here. Surely, Jesus even just, just prays. Surely, him, more than any other human being, can kind of get on with what he needs to do without anyone's help, without God's help. He can get on with things himself, can't he? And in one way, in one sense, the answer to that is yes, but that's not the way that God does things. That's not the way that Jesus does things. You see, the Son depends deeply upon his Father and obeys him. The Spirit, which, which unites the Father and the Son, enables Jesus the Son, as he depends upon his Father and obeys him. They're united as one God. They're in this together. And so this small moment here kind of opens us up again a little bit to the life of the Son of God. You see, he's not just praying because he's the perfect human. He's praying as the Son of the Father. And we don't hear... We don't see a little bit more of the context here uh, in Matthew's account, but in John's account of the same kind of event, the feeding of the 5,000, um, he points to how the crowd, seeing, hey, maybe you know Jesus could be the Messiah, they want to take him and make him king by force. We're going to, you're God's king, we're going to put you in the place of the king now. But Jesus is not having that. He's not going to be forced into being a king the way that the people want. It's not a popularity contest. If he wanted to do that, he had crowds already. 
No. He's going to be king by the road of suffering. He's going to be king following the road that takes him to the cross. And it's as he depends on his Father, enabled by the Spirit, that he's enabled to take that narrow road, keeping on his Father's plan. Well, continuing on here, verse 25, clearly Jesus has been praying for some time uh, because now it's almost dawn, the night is gone uh, and and Jesus is hightailing it over to the other side of the sea to join his disciples. But verse 26, they see him walking on the lake, don't they? When the disciples, verse 26, when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, it's a ghost, they cried and and they're afraid. But Jesus immediately says to them, take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. He says, don't be afraid because it's me. Later on, that phrase there that's translated, it is I, ego, Amy, I am, it would point the disciples, point others to the divinity of Jesus, to the fact that Jesus is identifying himself with Yahweh of the Old Testament. But I think that's probably a little bit beyond them at this point. Still, Peter's request is really a bit bold here, isn't it? It it, it seems a bit ludicrous. Just a few, um, let me come out to you, he says, verse 28. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Um, It seems a bit strange, but back in chapter 10, verse 1, the disciples are being trained and being sent out to do the kinds of things that Jesus has been doing, to, to act with the same authority that he's been acting. Uh, these verses here from, well, I'm missing some slides. I must have gumped it up. Um, Jesus, and his, he calls his 12 disciples to him and he gives them authority to drive out uh, evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So they're doing the things that Jesus is doing. Well, Jesus calls Peter to come back here in 14. He comes but he sees the wind and he doubts and he starts to sink. He's caught and then they're all back in the boat safely. The storm is gone. Now Peter at this point probably feels a bit sheepish for his bold response, which, you know, bold request which turned him into to doubt and fear. But what we're focused on here as the, the narrative kind of continues at a fast pace is verse 33. Look with me there. Verse 33. Those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. This is awesome. Sounds fantastic. Seems like they're finally getting something about Jesus. What do they understand here? Well, it it seems that they, they understand that Jesus is God's king. He's God's king and he's got some amazing power with him. They don't fully understand him as God yet. That's something that would come later after Jesus' resurrection, when Jesus comes and and reveals things to them. Even, as we'll see in a few chapters, how Jesus is going to live out being God's king still escapes them. When they hear about the cross, Peter says, no, 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 it's not going to happen to you. But they do have a growing understanding. In doubts, do you know what? Do you, do you notice what what they do? In verse twenty six, when uh, sorry, verse twenty, verse thirty, 
when he saw when Peter saw the wind and was afraid, when he doubts, he calls out to Jesus. They're calling out to him. They're continuing to draw near. They don't get it all with clear understanding yet, but they're growing, even with confusion in the midst. And so then when they come to the other side of the coast, when, they, when they'd crossed over, they land, they see the crowds still flocking to Jesus. The crowds knowing nothing of what's just happened out on the, on the sea, but they see him who meets their immediate need, meets the immediate need of the people, and cares for them, verse 36. It's been quite a, quite a long and a narrative, but I kind of just want to finish on this question, the question of how will you respond to him? How will you respond to Jesus? Will you remain in one of those places that I mentioned earlier this evening? You know, he's just a nice guy or a good teacher, a bit outdated, he can't help me. Or will you respond like the disciples in the boat? Let your idea of Jesus being keep keeping on being filled up by him, hearing what he's saying, letting the penny drop and continuing to draw near, holding on to those pearls, those ideas of wisdom that we hear about him. And so that then you're not just willing to run to him for a day like some of the crowds seem to be, but being willing to see that Jesus really does have authority over your whole life, your life, my life, and to give it to him, to submit to him. I pray that you've seen something more of the Lord Jesus this evening as we've been looking at this part of the Bible. It might be for the first time, might be for the 501st time. But can I say, don't let any familiarity, familiarity with Jesus stop you from drawing near, from asking questions, from seeing the real Jesus here and from continuing to draw near to this one who truly meets us all in our place of need. Indeed, in our greatest need, relationship with God. Draw near and let him transform your life and continue to transform you for his glory. Amen.